Diane Hullett, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I've got part one of a really interesting conversation with someone who I think you'll enjoy listening to. Sam Trad is the National Director of Care Advocacy for a large organization called Compassion and Choices. But I wanted to preface her arrival with a statement about what it is. Compassion and Choices is a nonprofit organization in the U.S., working to improve patient autonomy and individual choice at the end of life, including access to medical aid in dying. Its primary function is advocating for and ensuring access to aid in dying. Compassion and Choices, the history, is that it used to be years and years ago, there was an organization called the Hemlock Society, and there was also the Compassion in Dying Federation. These two organizations merged in 2007, and now the organization has a staff of 80 people located across the country. You can find out more about this organization at CompassionAndChoices.org, and their website is just chock full of information. Sam and I are going to talk about some of that, as well as medical aid in dying, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, and dementia. We're kind of all over the map because there's so much to say about these important topics. So enjoy part one. So welcome, Sam. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. So tell us about, you have this fancy title of National Director of Care Advocacy for Compassion and Choices. Start where you want to start, either with your position or the organization as a whole. Sure. Sounds good. I I'm actually, I'm going to take a step back and just tell you how I got into this work and then talk about my position. Um, when I was growing up, my mother had a terminal illness and we didn't know how long she was going to live. Um, and we lived in California at the time and I was in high school right around the time Oregon passed their medical aid and dying law. The first one in the country, 25 years ago. And I remember just being shocked that that wasn't an option for my mom. And we even talked about whether or not she should move to Oregon, what we wanted to do. And, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing to lose someone you love. And it's even worse when you can't support them in a peaceful death or in the kind of death that they want. And I knew my mom didn't want to suffer at the end of her life and I didn't want her to suffer either. And so this has always been an issue that I'm very passionate about. Um, so fast forward 25 years, <laughs> I'm the National Director of Care Advocacy. What does that mean? Um, well, I I work across the country with folks to help pass medical aid and dying laws, implement medical aid and dying laws, but also Compassion and Choices has a ton of other work that we do outside of aid and dying that a lot of people have no idea. Uh, we're really well known for medical aid and dying, but we do a lot more than that. Um, our, our mission is to empower everyone to chart their own end of life journey. And so that can mean different things to different people. Great. What a gorgeous mission. I love that. And I was, I was blown away when I went on the website and saw how many different pockets of information and um, quizzes and strategies and conversation starters and just all kinds of things. So we'll get into that. So I, I said in my little introduction that like compassion and choices, and I always want to say compassionate choices, I'm sure that's a problem, right? But compassion and choices really grew out of the Hemlock Society and the National Federation. No, what was it called? Compassion and Dying Federation. Yeah. Yes. Do you, are you familiar with that history? Like if listeners have yeah. just no idea what we're talking about, how do you put this in some sure. context? Yeah. So our roots are in the Hemlock Society, which has been around for well over 30 years. 
Um, Barbara Coombs Lee, who is our past president and um, now she's our president emeritus, she actually helped write Oregon's law in the basement of a church. And it's so fun to hear her talk about it because, you know, when they put together this aid and dying law, it was brand new. You know, there was nothing like it in the country. And so they tried to figure out a way to make sure that it was safe, that nobody would be hurt by it, but also that people who were dying could access it and have a peaceful end of life. And they were successful. You know, they passed it. We have, we have data every year coming out of Oregon, and there's never been a single incident of coercion or abuse. Now there's 10 states in Washington, D.C. have all authorized medical aid in dying. But let me tell you, as the organization that leads passing these laws, Compassion and Choices Action Network, our sister organization, it is not easy. And it's interesting because medical aid in dying is um, a nonpartisan issue. In fact, libertarians, Republicans, Democrats, everybody supports it. In this time of hyperpartisanship, the majority of people want the option of medical aid in dying. However, legislators are often scared to touch it because, first of all, nobody wants to talk about death right? It's such a taboo in our society. Nobody wants to think about it. And it's a huge problem because when you don't talk about it, you don't think about it. You're not preventing yourself from being jinxed by death, as some people might think, right? But actually you're setting yourself up for a really tragic death that you may not want because your loved ones don't know what you want. You don't have your affairs in order so you can have the end of life you want. Um, and what's interesting is polls show that people want this option. So it's actually a really good issue for legislators to support and to run on. We have a ton of data. In fact, our um, legislative handbook just came out and we followed the legislators who supported medical aid and dying in all of the states where we're trying to pass it. And it shows that the majority of them, 95% were reelected and the 5% who weren't reelected, it wasn't because they supported medical aid and dying that they didn't win their election. Um, interesting. But, so it's, so it's popular. I mean, it's popular among yeah. people and it's popular among sort of, um, people nod their heads when, when you talk about access to it for the most part, but there is resistance to it clearly. Otherwise this wouldn't be so challenging. Yes. And I think a lot of it is really just fear. Um, the biggest opposition is the Catholic church and Catholic doctrine is very clear. You know, they believe in redemptive suffering. I was raised Catholic. So I know, um, but the majority of Catholics themselves poll the same as everybody else. And it, you know, every single poll is about the same, somewhere between 70 and 75%, the majority of people want the option. Now that doesn't mean everybody's going to use it, yeah. but want to have it available to them. That seems like the key thing. Like when you put it under this umbrella of, do I have a choice for it? I mean, it falls under all the choice issues, right? So when I think when when you talk about it as a as an umbrella that says, do we have autonomy? Do we have independence and choice over our medical decisions at whatever stage? This becomes a hot button for people, and they're like, of course I want choice, right? But I want to control your choice. <laughs> so it's super <laughs> interesting. Yeah. And it's something that affects everyone, right? It's not a, a man issue. It's not a woman issue. It's not a non-binary issue. You know, all of us are going to die. And it's, most of us have trauma related to death. There's someone who's died that, you know, it's, we're still grieving. It's such a hard thing to talk about, but again, it's so important. Um, and so we are very active across the country trying to pass medical aid and dying laws because we really want everyone to be able to access this compassionate end of life option should they qualify for it. 
So I can tell you a little bit about the the general law. You know, it's a little different in each state. I'm just going to give the cliff notes because otherwise people are going to tune out because it is, it's a process. Right. Um, in most states, it's about a 13 step process to access the law. This isn't something you can go to your doctor, ask them for a prescription and go pick it up a couple hours later. It does not work that way at all. You have to, in most states, you have to have two different consultations by the same main provider. Usually this is a physician, but a lot of states have incredible advanced practice registered nurses or physician assistants who are fully capable. It's within their scope of practice to be able to diagnose and give a prognosis to somebody who's dying so that they can support them in this process. So that person has a whole laundry list of things they go over with the patient. They don't need to have any special credential. In fact, the majority of doctors who prescribe medical aid in dying tend to be family physicians. You know, people end up going to their family physician, somebody they've known for maybe most of their life even, to ask them to write this prescription. Although there's also, you know, oncologists, all kinds of different doctors are fully capable of writing the prescription. And again, in some states, advanced practice registered nurses or physician assistants. There has to be a second consultation, usually by a second doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistants to confirm the diagnosis and prognosis. So you have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. This is for people who are dying mm -hmm. and the people who choose aid in dying, they do not want to die. And I just want to reemphasize this. This is not something that someone chooses because they're suffering from depression. In fact, there are safeguards to make sure that's not why they're choosing it. That doesn't mean, you know, most people who are terminally ill have some level of depression, um, but that's one of the things that they're screened for so that they, we want to make sure the patient understands why they're asking for this option. The person also has to be mentally capable of making medical decisions. That means this is not something for people with advanced dementia. This is not something for your advanced healthcare directive. This is something you have to ask for yourself, both orally to your, your primary care person or whoever your doctor is, nurse practitioner, um, as well as a written request. Usually there's a written request that has to be signed by two different witnesses. And there's, again, a little bit of a laundry list there just to make sure there's no coercion going on. Nobody's trying to get, you know, mom or dad to go through with this. And again, you have to be imminently dying. Um, and people choose the option of medical aid in dying because they do not want to suffer. And they're, they're terrified of what their end of life experience might be like my mom. We were so afraid of what it was going to be like for her. We wanted to make sure she had an option so that she wouldn't have to suffer. And it's really interesting. We get data from all of these states that have aid in dying. So we have so much information about this option and we see the same statistic in every state. About a third of the people who go through this entire process to get the medication never actually take it, but just having it on hand gives them a huge sense of relief to know that they don't have to suffer if they don't want to, if things take a turn, they have the medication available. It's, it's a huge gift and it's really palliative. You know, it helps, it helps the family. I mean, we hear such incredible stories from family members that their loved one didn't have to worry anymore. They could just relax and enjoy their final weeks and days on earth because they didn't have to worry about their suffering. And it is interesting how much fear of suffering, fear of pain, I think is a big piece that people are afraid of. And Barbara Carnes, of course, you know, great end of life educator. She always says in this day and age, nobody should be in pain at the end of life. There are medicines, there are hospice helpers, there are 
palliative care doctors who can support you in that. And so it really shouldn't be the level of suffering that I think we fear. So it's kind of interesting, but I've read that over and over again too, that that there is some quality of having it in your hand that brings some relief to the sense of fear and suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And quality of life, right? Quality of life is different for everyone. And so you can't say what is right or wrong for another person. It should be up to the person to decide when their quality of life is, is diminished. And and most of us don't even know for sure until we get there, you know, like, what does this mean? What is it going to be like? It's our, it's first time for everybody. I, that's what I was just thinking about that today. I was thinking, well, you know, you think you want to not be on a ventilator until maybe you're at the moment of, well, if putting me on a ventilator would help me survive several more years, I think maybe I'd go on the ventilator. I don't know, hard to say, but right. These are the questions that are so, it's so complex. It's it's yeah. usually not one simple answer for any one person. Even one of the things I loved on the Compassion and Choices website is a map and it's a map of the US and it's an interactive map. And it says, what state do you want to know about? And you click on your state. For me, it was Colorado. And there was all kinds of information, including the Colorado Health Department report. And it says the Colorado Health Department report shows medical aid and dying law continues to provide compassionate option for terminally ill residents. And it goes on to talk about some of the things, very things that you just said, that there there has been a steady increase in prescriptions, but it continues to be not everybody takes it. And so I think collecting these statistics are so crucial in terms of understanding and moving forward. Um, Wait, I was going to read one more part. It was also interesting that 52% of qualified patients in Colorado come from metro areas, Denver, metro, but a number are now coming from rural and they wanted to make sure that Colorado had equal access no matter where you lived. And they go, this report goes on to say that there's three keys to ensuring that individuals can access these laws, education of patients and medical providers, removing burdensome regulatory barriers and good data collection. And I just, I loved it when I read that last piece because we're kind of swimming around in the data here, but I think it's so important that we know what's being done. Yeah. And I got to say, it it doesn't happen organically. Access is really still an issue, even in places like Colorado, even in places like Oregon. And um, I'm so grateful to our volunteers in Colorado because they have done so much work to make sure that people don't have to live in, in Denver or Boulder to be able to access the law, that if they live you know, in Durango or someplace else further out. I don't know. I hope that's not offensive to anyone. Yeah, but you Sterling. Know. Well, anyway, the Eastern yeah. Plains or anyone the Western Mountains. Yeah. Right. Your zip code shouldn't determine whether or not you have access to aid in dying. But in a lot of places, it, it, it does because part of the problem is there's a growing number of Catholic healthcare systems that absolutely will not allow people to access the law. So any doctor can opt out. They don't have to support a patient unless they want to. But right now, Catholic healthcare systems like Dignity Health can say no one is allowed to participate in this. And so if you live in an area and that is your only option for healthcare, then you're not able to access the law. You know, it's it's really difficult. Or you can try to transfer or find a private doctor, but it's, you know, it's hard to do that when you're healthy, let alone when you're when you're dying. Really, really tricky. 
Yeah. So that's so- some of our work too. We do a lot of work on religious refusal and, and watching mergers and, you know, trying to make sure that there are accessible healthcare systems and systems that are supported so that they can support their, their doctors and nurses and social workers so that they can support patients in their end of life options. Interesting. Well, how, so say more about what your role is with your title, Director of Care Advocacy. Yeah. So I, um, I really focus on our work outside of passing medical aid and dying laws. Although I do, I do that as well a little bit too, but my main focus is on, um, everything outside of that, which actually includes what we call our access campaign. So after we pass a state, we stick around to make sure that they can access the law. And we call these access campaigns and we rely heavily on volunteers. We have some of the best volunteers in the world, I think, in our organization who I'm so grateful for. So we work to train volunteers and equip them so that they can go out and try to do, you know, we have a lot of information on how we can help people get access, right? So working with them to be able to help create that access. But we also do a lot of work around dementia. And as I think you may have seen on our website, you know, one in two people are going to die with or from dementia and it's terrifying. And a lot of people don't realize that, well, they don't realize, first of all, how dementia works, that there's stages of dementia. You don't just wake up one day and you have, you know, advanced dementia. It's, it takes time, usually five to 10 years to really advance in dementia. And it's not always linear. Um, But also you do have compassionate end of life options if you prepare ahead of time with dementia. And that's something else that a lot of people don't, don't realize that they don't document. It's really important to write it down. Um, We have an excellent tool called uh, dementia values and priorities tool on our website. And um, it's very thorough and it goes through, it teaches you all about dementia and what end of life options are available to you. And so you take, it's almost like a quiz. So you think through, you know, if I am happy, but I'm bedridden, I don't recognize my family, you know, do I want one of the following end of life options? And everybody's going to have a different answer for that. But some options include things that you may not think about. Like, for example, let's say you get a urinary tract infection. What seems like the compassionate thing to do for that? Antibiotics, right? Throw some antibiotics, you're fine. However, you don't have to do that. You can actually refuse treatment and make sure that your pain is addressed so that you're comfortable. And that can actually be a compassionate end of life option. You can, you could die from a UTI, but having your pain managed and have it be your choice because you've chosen to refuse medication for this illness. Should you get it? If you have, you know, whatever stage of dementia you're at, it's a lot. It's a lot to think it's about. So and a lot hard. of people don't know about it, but it's so important to to know about this and have these conversations. So important. That dementia tool that you're describing on the Compassion Choices website was is one of the best things I've seen for this. And I thought it was great because one of the questions was, why are people, why are so many people having dementia now? Well, it's flat out says people used to die of de- pneumonia, diseases. Yeah. Uh, infections and, you know, diarrhea would kill people. So you don't die of that anymore. Therefore you live a lot longer. Therefore the brain is impacted and here we are. But I think, I think that's such a powerful tool. And um, I haven't seen one that's so well-constructed that really allows you to lay it out while you're still feeling pretty much yourself. You can kind of lay out what it is that you want to have happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really in depth and it's, 
it's really not enough just to fill it out. You know, it's good to understand what your end of life options are. And I can talk a little bit more about other end of life options, but you know, you want to document everything. But another problem is that people, they fill out these elaborate advanced healthcare directives and then they put them in their safe and they never talk to their family. They don't notify who their healthcare proxy is and nobody knows what mom or dad wants. Then there's arguments between siblings, what they want. You know, it's, it's not enough to just fill it out. You got to make sure everybody has this paper that you're obnoxious about having conversations about it, you know? I mean, and it can be really hard. Um, but another really popular tool that we have that I love is our end of life decisions guide. And it's a really beautiful booklet. You can download it for free on our website, or you can fill out a form and we will mail you one for free. And it helps you think through your values at the end of life. Because no matter how good of a planner you are, things aren't always going to go according to plan. So if your loved ones, especially your healthcare proxy, understands what your values are, they can make better decisions for you in, in a situation where you can't advocate for yourself, where they don't know exactly what you want. Um, so again, creating the time and space to have those conversations. So a lot of these things we're talking about, my job is to figure out how do we help people become empowered? How do we spread this knowledge both on the micro level, but then also on a macro level? So working in state legislators, working with doctors, hospitals, hospices, healthcare systems, you know, having these conversations and making sure people are set up for success because our healthcare system's broken. I don't know anybody who who's never had a bad experience with healthcare, unfortunately. And so we're doing what we can in our part for end of life to try to, to help people both macro and micro level. Right. And as you said, it's sort of the micro level of the individual person reflecting, using whatever tools from your website or other places to kind of reflect and then sharing those. And yes, it's awkward. And you and I are on the same page. I mean, my whole thing is how do we have more conversations? And I know it's not easy. And it's so interesting because sometimes it's the person who's more towards the end of life right? Who might be dying or have a compromised body in some way. Sometimes it's up to them to bring it up and the other people resist it. And sometimes it's up to the younger or more healthy, whatever quality we want to say person for them to bring it up gently and kind of a, you know, a gentle knock on the door. Like, can we talk about this thing? And I always also say it's not one conversation. You know, I think we're so uncomfortable with it. We think like, well, okay, dad and I sat down and we talked for two minutes. We're done. And it's like, that was probably just the tip of the iceberg. There's probably a lot more to say and repeating it over and over and being sure, as you said, that everyone's in the loop. Yeah. I want to go back to something though, Sam, too, because you were going down the, this is the procedure in a general way for these states with medical aid and dying. And then I was like, oh, did I go off on a tangent? Did you finish that trajectory of what you wanted to say? Well, I'd love to talk just a little bit more about those campaigns, because if okay. somebody's listening in a state, especially a state that doesn't have aid and dying authorized yet, there are so many ways for you to help and get involved and you are needed. We cannot do this work alone. Again, I'm so grateful for our volunteers. And no matter what state you live in, we have volunteers in just about every state. And even if you're the only volunteer in a state, although I'm pretty sure we have volunteers in all the states, even in Alaska, we can find really helpful work for you to do. Um, and, and we can work with you to see what you enjoy doing, what your time capacity is. 
Um, but in a lot of states, one of the most influential things is to hear people's personal stories. And I'm guessing if they're listening to your podcast, they might have a really compelling personal story about end of life. And so having those conversations, especially with legislators, you know, there, there's no legislative meetings I've ever been in. I, you know, I studied political science, but there's nothing quite like this issue because legislators, I've seen so many legislators cry and talk about their loved ones who've passed away. This is not something you talk about with most policy issues. Um, but even some legislators who just, you know, they're really afraid of the issue. They're afraid of unfounded fear when they hear your personal story about why you care about this issue, why you want to make sure that, that your state, your loved ones, that you have the full range of end of life options is important to you. It changes minds. You know, that's what really does. And it's, and we need more than just having support because there's so much going on in the world right now. It's not enough just to have legislators support our bill. We want to make sure they make it a priority. I mean, every state's different, but in some states, there's just hundreds and thousands of bills. So to make sure our bill gets heard, that it is a priority, that it makes it all the way through the state legislature, we need voices talking to their elected representatives saying, hey, this is important to me. I care about this. Please vote for this. Make it a priority. I love that. So kind of the personal stories are a way that it really connects, that yeah. then the law becomes more than just a theory um, or something to be afraid of. I, I think it is really interesting how it's a hot button for fear, and yet it really alleviates fear for the most part. Yeah. And all the data supports it. You know, again, there's never been an incident of coercion or abuse. It is a very, really the problem with Asian tongue is it's so hard to access. Um, but it is, you know, it is very well safeguarded. And so every state should have this. There's no reason that that someone who's dying shouldn't be able to access the law. But because of how our system is, you know, we need to pass it through each state legislature. And and it's a beautiful unifying issue, really, you know, in this world where it feels like it's constantly us versus them, this isn't everybody, you know, everybody's going to die. Everybody can relate to this. Um, and there's no reason to, to be afraid. I love that. I love that framing of that. Is it, does it feel like there's momentum? I mean, I think it's fascinating. I don't think I knew until the last couple of years that there were as many states as there are. I mean, in other words, in my mind as a as a lay person, I thought, well, Oregon, they've got that right to die law, but I wasn't really tracking how many other states have passed it. And 10 is not small. Yeah. In fact, it's one in five people in the US lives in a jurisdiction that has authorized medical aid and dying. But we got to get more states passed. And it, you know, we've kind of I, I, for lack of a better term, I, I wanted to say we've got the low hanging fruit of states, which isn't true. Every state has been really hard to pass, but we need to continue, you know, and, and it doesn't matter if the state is red, blue, purple. This is a good issue. I, I mean, look right. at Colorado. I think Colorado is a great example. Colorado actually is the only state that passed medical aid and dying through a ballot initiative. And I wish we could do that in every state, but boy, ballot initiatives are expensive and we just don't have, we are a nonprofit. We do not have that kind of funding. Right. If you and know I can... anybody in a state who wants to fund a ballot initiative, like Arizona, for example, right. we would be happy to work with them. This could happen because a big ask. <laughs> this is what it says. It says the end of life options act passed by 60% of Colorado voters in 2016 was one of the most popular ballot measures in state history with over 1.7 million Coloradans supporting this safe, compassionate medical practice. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I think Colorado is a great model state for that. So this year, you know, we're working in um, Maryland, Nevada, 
all, all over the country, we have state campaigns that are really, you know, we've been trying and trying and trying Massachusetts, um, and we're hopeful to get it across the finish line. But again, we need support. We need people who, and it doesn't have to be hard. We have the most amazing digital team. You can sign up for our emails and the email will say, click here, put in your address, send this to your legislator and boom. I mean, it takes five minutes to send an email to your legislator, you know, and then we'll usually ask, so do you want to pick up the phone? And if you don't want to, if you want to go make dinner, whatever it is, fine. Like, thank you for doing this one little action alert. It helps so much. That is great. Well, Sam, I think this might be a good place to pause our part one, and then we're going to come back and have part two and kind of keep going down this road of both the power of these laws, the importance of these laws, and how they affect people. Sounds great. All right. Thanks so much for part one. You've been listening to part one of the Best Life, Best Death podcast with Sam Trad. I'm Diane Hullett, and you can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. And you can find out more about the work of this important organization at compassionandchoices.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.